Welcome to In Good Company on NTS Radio, a monthly show for working women with me, Otega Uagba. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the founder of Women Who, which is a London-based community for creative working women. And I'm also the author of Little Black Book, which is a modern career guide for working women, and also a Sunday Times bestseller, which you can buy in any bookstore out there. This podcast is all about providing you with the practical advice and fresh ideas that will help you work better, aided and abetted by some of the smart, successful, creative women that I know. New episodes are released monthly and you can listen to them on NTS or you can download them via iTunes a week after our show air date. So if you're not already, subscribe now on iTunes to make sure you get them straight to your phone. On today's show, I'm talking to Charmaine Lovegrove, who's the head of Dialogue Books an imprint of Little Brown and the UK's first inclusive publishing imprint, created in order to find and publish writing talent from demographics currently underrepresented by the mainstream publishing industry, which tends to skew pretty white and male. So that means people from minority backgrounds, the LGBTQ community, people with disabilities and so on. Prior to setting up Dialogue Books last year, Charmaine was the co-founder of a consultancy that scouted books to turn into film and TV, as well as Elle magazine's literary editor. And before that, she ran her own bookshop in Berlin and has basically worked in pretty much every facet of the publishing industry over the course of her career. On today's segment of Ask a Tega, I'm talking about how to deal with an employer who promises you a pay rise but doesn't actually follow through. First though, here's my conversation with Charmaine. Hi, Charmaine. Welcome to In Good Company. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm so, so pleased to have you here. This is a really nice one. I feel like it's more like a conversation with a friend. It just isn't like chatting. absolute conversation with a friend. I have to make sure we don't go too off-piste <laughs> um, and just start chatting about random things. But for everyone listening who doesn't know you as well as I do, can you explain a little bit about what you do and why you do it? Okay, so I'm... A publisher, which I've been for seven months, and so sometimes it feels really strange to say it because I've grown up with this industry, you know, the publishing industry. So to have become the person that leads an imprint that has the strategy, um, energy, drive to ensure that the books go from manuscript to the hands of readers is just a huge privilege. So I run an imprint called Dialogue Books. It's named after my bookshop in Berlin. And at Dialogue, my aim is to spark a conversation around stories and voices that we don't often hear from. So people from the BAME, LGBTQI+, disability and working class communities. And why did you start this imprint? So there's been so much about in publishing about the sort of lack of diversity. You know, we have an industry that has 73% women, um, but 0.2% BAME, for example, or um, ethnic minorities. Do you mean working in it or being published? Um, so it's um, that's working and mm. then being published um, in 2017, there were less than 100 books published by people of colour. That is so nuts when you think about it. Well, when you think about, 
you know, in English language, there's something like 1.5 million books that are published a year between, <gasps> you know. Shut up. Yeah, it's a huge amount. And then in the UK, I mean, Hachette alone, I mean, we're, we're really publishing like hundreds of books a week. Mm. Um, and, and so just to clarify for people listening, Dialogue is an imprint of Little Brown, which is part of the Hachette group. Exactly. And at Hachette, we have, um, we're a federal company that has five different companies. So there's Orion, there's Little Brown, there's Bookachaw, there's there's John Murray. Yeah. So we have sort of lots of different divisions. And then each of those divisions have imprint heads. And each of those imprint heads make a decision about what types of books and what sort of culture they want their imprint to have. And mm. mine is on Unheard Voices. So, yeah, you know, I just, I've been following this conversation for a really long time, but mm. because I was in Berlin and because I was a scout, so I used to find books that could be adapted into film and television, you know, I, I had always trusted my industry to kind of do the right thing as it as it was growing and evolving and as the world and society was changing. Mm-hmm. And it seems as though I... Um, that trust was misplaced, essentially. So I had a conversation with a few different people and was really inspired by Virago, which is at Little Brown, which is the feminist imprint, mm-hmm. which started as an independent feminist imprint. But what they did was amazing in um, in the 60s and 70s and, you know, how they really brought women's fiction to the fore and literary women's fiction mm-hmm. to the fore was, was just incredible and super inspiring. Um, and everyone kept saying, what should we do about, you know, diverse voices in publishing? And I'm like, well, that's what worked for women. So maybe you'd need an imprint. And then they were like, is it ghettoizing? And I'm like, well, I didn't used to be called Bane. I didn't used to be called diverse. I wasn't othered until mm. quite recently. I, you know, it's like you've come up with all these acronyms to kind of describe us. Um, so the ghettoizing and othering you're doing yourself um so maybe so there was a worry that by starting a separate imprint that was specifically dedicated to you know promoting and finding diverse voices that that would i mean yeah do you feel like that gets other imprints off the hook in terms of having to try harder to find diverse writers no i mean i you know the thing that i say on a daily basis is that you know, what I'm doing is about inclusivity. Mm-hmm. What they're doing is about diversity. And that's why, as an industry, which is why I think it's harder for them, because if you already other something, then it's harder to, then, you, you know, you've already built barriers. Yeah. Whereas because I talk about inclusivity, then I do have a couple of white middle class writers on my list. And I also, I like my list is genuinely diverse yeah that's a really good distinction i'll get into the kind of structural uh, i guess issues within publishing a little bit later but i want to find out um again for people listening who don't exactly know what your role involves because your job title is like publisher yeah um but that's so so broad um but like i want to kind of know end to end what your remit is Mm -hmm. and how it goes about that like there's an aspiring writer out there listening to this now who is like how does my book end up you know being bought by a publisher and end up on bookshelves and people reading it and reviewing it like what do you do what do I do okay so I um essentially the role of a publisher is akin to a project manager and so a really hands-on project manager so there's probably like five or six different different um, 
So there's probably five or six different departments within a publishing house. Um, so there, but it starts with me as a commissioning editor. So as my role as publisher is essentially to run a business within a publishing house. Um, and then I have to wear lots of different hats, which is why it kind of, you know, the, the term project manager suits really well. So at some points I'm a commissioning editor, that's the first bit, where I'm thinking about what it is that I want to commission for the list. And there's other people within Little Brown, like my really brilliant colleague, um, Don, Dominic Wakeford, um, who also can commission a couple of books a year for dialogue. So it's not just me. So when we understand that a book can work for dialogue books and work really well on the list and complement the list and something that we think should be um, in the hands of readers, then we take that through a commissioning process. We take that to acquisitions. We speak to the agent. We make offers. We go into auctions. And then basically the book goes all the way through production. It goes through design. It goes through, you know, sales are involved to sell it into to sell it into the supermarkets or into Waterstones, into the retailers, and um, and then the publicity teams get involved. And basically, there's a whole process. And my job is to manage every single element of that process. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned something that I want to kind of pick up quickly, because I do think it's very relevant to the diversity issue within publishing, which was... Um, how do books end up with you? Because I guess it's largely manuscripts through agents. But I feel like getting an agent in itself is an issue of um, a certain amount of privilege. Like I think there are definitely, it's, you know, there are people who kind of exist in that world and know a friend who knows a friend and can get a meeting or a coffee with an agent quite Mm. easily. And there are people who definitely don't. Is that something that you're trying to counteract or is it just... It just makes your life too hard to kind of try and... You know, I'm really open to submissions. um, Direct. Direct from from, um, writers. But the hardest thing about that is that the only thing that's difficult is kind of managing those expectations. Mm. And I think that's what an agent brings to the table. Mm. So sometimes when I get a manuscript from someone unsolicited... who has just heard of what I'm doing and has sent their their book to me. You must um, get that quite a lot because dialogue is pretty high profile. Yeah, I get I get I get it a lot. And what's I think what's really hard is for people to understand that without pu- publishing works on interest from others. So essentially, if somebody else is interested in a book, regardless if it's unsolicited or an agent, then it kind of moves it up the pile. Um, so if you'll get so if you imagine if I'm getting like. 12 manuscripts a week Mm. and how do you prioritize and so the priority comes through the urgency of interest from other other publishing houses so it's something that you don't want to miss out on so the competition element is what essentially moves your manuscript up up a pile Mm. but when you're an unso when you're an unsolicited um manuscript then it's quite it's quite hard for that to take priority on any given week that makes because sense. the thing that we don't have is is time mm. and the thing that I am constantly battling with is just time in my in my day-to-day is actually just enough time to read and that's what all editors are like when you work that out let me know before you started dialogue the imprint and mm-hmm. started working in little brown you basically have worked 
in I feel like every single facet of the publishing industry so what were you doing before that? So a brief rundown of my CV is I was a bookseller when I, so I started as a bookseller when I was 16 um, I studied politics and anthropology I thought I wanted to make films documentary films but then I went back I just love books literature writing so then I um, started working at the London Review Bookshop for five years. Then I became a publicist at FMCM. So as a literary publicist and worked with lots of different brands and worked, um, and authors and um, and was just an amazing experience. So I worked with Fiona McMurray, um, who I mentioned earlier. And um, then I moved to Berlin and opened a bookshop because that's my first love is mm. talking to people about books and stories so I moved to Berlin opened the first new English language bookshop in Germany um, and started doing events at Soho House in Berlin which was great um, and did that for six years um, and at some point in that I started scouting I was working for Ufa which is the biggest production company in Germany who are owned by Fremantle who are owned by Bertelsmann and I started scouting finding books that could be adapted but kind of made the job up Mm. Um, and then realised it was a proper job and so decided to move back to London and see what I could do with it. I met my business partner, Toby Coventry, and we created Dialogue Scouting. Um, basically, we had six clients and we would find stories for them to adapt. And um, then Elle approached me and asked me if I wanted to... Um, if I wanted to be their literary editor and because I was reading so early as a scout it was like a really perfect fit eight months ago then I kind of came up with the idea about a imprint um with Charlie King like how did you even learn like the business side of like you're like oh I opened a bookshop in Berlin that's not an easy thing to I know do. this sounds really crazy but I actually watched um every single episode of The Apprentice oh my god shut up really yeah <laughs> I watched it without realising that that's what I was doing. I just kind of, I just love The Apprentice. Like, I don't like the people. No. But in seeing them, like, how, like, preempting their mistakes. At some point, you're like, oh, yeah, like, if you had, you know, that you know that thing of, like, you're watching it and you're thinking. This is what never, I would do. This is so dumb. Well, also, but now. you're just thinking, like, have they never seen the programme before? Because clearly that's a task about profit and loss yeah so like I didn't know about profit and loss because I didn't learn about that from working in a bookshop when I was 17 but mm. watching The Apprentice I learned about profit and loss I learned about giving presentations mm. I learned about um I learned about how to you know how to buy and sell mm. and I just kind of watched it when I was younger and was just like there are some massive takeaways from the show that have, and if you if you look at the personalities, then, like you know, then it's a different kind of show. Then it's, mm. but if you actually look at like the, the business and side the mechanics of it, and the mechanics, but because I'd never worked anywhere, you'd have to give a presentation. But they all, I mean, they're giving like presentations nearly every week in mm. The Apprentice, and then you're like, huh. And you're like, oh, this needs to be designed. This needs to be on point. And watching things like that and Dragon's Den and then just being like, I know, you know, that alongside this idea that, you know, the thing that's really important with me, which we can't ever forget is like my obsession with books. So if I was trying to do it in a completely different field, like I don't really know how it would work out. But you'd have 
Yeah. But because my grounding and my foundation with literature and storytelling and having and understanding an how other people who enjoy because your customer base is people who like books. Yeah. So understanding that and having that customer insight, I guess, is key. Exactly. And then and then just just pushing and going, you know, and also I just really don't like the word no. Like, I just don't like yeah, it. Yeah, that, that tallies <laughs> up with what I know of you, Charmaine. You're pretty much... I don't. I can't actually ever imagine saying no to you. Like, really? The idea terrifies me. <laughs> um. <laughs> I just... The word no, it's so interesting now being in an office environment where you're like, people are like, oh, no, you can't do that. And I'm like, you know, that what's really funny about people saying no to me about things just in general is that I'm never I'm never asking for the moon on a stick because mm. if I wanted the moon on a stick I would go and get it myself <laughs> so if I'm asking you for something it's probably because I genuinely need that collaboration mm. and so I just need you to work with me because mm. otherwise if you're not otherwise I just do it myself mm. so when people start saying no I just have to sort of unpick the no and I've just always done that and been like, that has nothing to do with me or what I'm asking. So therefore I just need to go about it in a different way. And then I just try and find the yes. I suppose running your own business, like I think doing anything where yourself and running your own business is like, you really do have to be a problem solver and really like, you can't, if you run a business and accept no for an answer, like you will just go under, like you have to find ways around obstacles. Yeah. Um, and also... I guess processes that are maybe there for just because they're historic. Well, I don't want to say for no reason, but are just historic and people haven't bothered to think about exactly. ways around them for a while. Exactly. And when you've run your own businesses, it's like you are super agile. You know, it's like running a business in Germany that I turned into three different businesses mm. all with the same name. Mm. And and So it was at the bookshop. The which bookshop and then we had a we had a consultancy called mm -hmm. Dialogue Berlin, which was a publishing consultant, English language publishing consultancy, which mm -hmm. I ran with um, three other women. Mm. And then um, and then the, the scouting side. But on, on, you know, but also I was always doing stuff like I decided that, you know, when you work for yourself, you don't get to have training, for example, because no one's paying for you to go on training. So I start. I did a second. <laughs> I gave myself a secondment with a um, publishing, a self-publishing company, which is owned by Holtzbrink, which is owned by Macmillan in Germany. And so I was suddenly like working for a year. But that's, I think that's actually such an important thing to point out. Like nobody tells you to go off and do some training. You don't have like, a, you know, a line manager being like, oh, I think this is like an area that you need to plug. And I think it's so important for self-employed people to be able to like self-evaluate and identify where there are gaps in their knowledge or where knowing about something else might help them to take another step. I've, I've never yeah. heard of someone kind of assign themselves a second. But <laughs> yeah. it's, no, it's no, well, I just was like the, the digital landscape of publishing is changing and I need to know about this. And there's mm. this company who are experimenting with it in Berlin mm. and I need to go and be part of that. And so um, it meant that I got to talk to all the digital publishers and platforms. And so sort of I was liaising with them as we were building the English language platform. And it was just, it was amazing. And it also meant- and Building contacts as well. Building, building contacts, but also like learning about like, international business so you know working in German and you know imagine that when I moved to Germany I didn't speak 
a word of German. And then, but then I, you know, being in those kinds of environments, then I, um, my German became really, really good and really robust because it had to be. And, you know, you have to, especially when you're talking about culture and saying this is how we would do this in Britain and like this this design wouldn't really suit people in the UK market mm. even if it does in Germany and you're having to kind of argue your point and you don't want to you know you need to be able to do that in both languages so yeah so that so on very on like a lot of different levels it was really really helpful we've kind of touched on it a bit about the transition of going from being self-employed to in-house. And I find that really interesting because we hear so much about the other way round. Like there are lo- there's endless amounts of articles and resources about how to go from being, you know, working full time or working for a sort of big employer to being self-employed. But there isn't that much conversation about the other way round. Mm. And I just think it's fascinating to have been self-employed for such a long time for the majority of your career to be honest yeah and then to do it the other way around and obviously to go in at a high level what's what have you found the most like I guess surprising about that transition either good or bad or challenging something that I find really interesting is the economic side of it so you know house prices in London are are stratospheric Mm. and if you'd said to me I was with a friend a year ago who's also works in publishing and we were walking through bricks and I was like, I'd love to have a house on this road. And she was like, well, one day you will because you just need to work really hard. I mean, like you already work really hard. You'll, I, like, I have faith that you'll get there because mm. that's what you want. And I was like, they're 1.3 million. Like, how am I going to do that? And she was just like, you'll just find a way. And I remember thinking, yeah, it's true. I just need to get more clients, get more option deals. Like I just need to, if I work really hard and add, I can do that. And then now that I'm in house, what's really interesting is that I'm like, oh, I have a salary. <laughs> and although I'm really pleased with my salary and I have no complaints about it, it does change the way in which I think about money and investment and like what I can do with money. Like I feel like, it just makes me more realistic about what's possible mm. and how you how you would how you spend it how you save it because i've you know every i wasn't really like a freelancer i i've been a ceo of my own businesses for 10 years mm. so i've never actually had i've always had a wage from my businesses mm. that are really solid like I've always been paid around the same you know I paid myself um at the same time every month Mm. for you know I've never like cash flow has never really been my issue Mm -hmm. um I know that they are with other freelancers but I'm not I was never a journalist Mm. and I always had clients on retainers and Mm. that just made sense to me so I've never not had that Mm -hmm. so I just needed to build them up and the more clients I had then the more money I would have and Mm. now I'm like the more books I publish the same money I have and that's really interesting I would say for me that's like the biggest transition I think that's a really interesting point actually because I suppose when you are self-employed or when you kind of have your own clients there is always that kind of possibility I suppose now you kind of have a clear idea of what your salary is likely to be next year or in two, three, five years time, like provided you stay with the same place. Um, And I suppose that kind of element of, for some people that's like a really reassuring thing, other people not so much, but that element of like uh, uncertainty or 
you know, doubt or just not knowing that's been Yeah, removed. yeah, like I can't increase my income by 300% because, mm, because you I just pushed it. Yeah, exactly, because I just pushed it. Yeah. And that's like, that's the thing that takes the longest to get used to that mm. I would never have thought about. You kind of said earlier that you essentially kind of run a business within Little Brown, whereas before you ran your own business within you know, the world of Charmaine, essentially, that you didn't answer to anyone else. Like, what is that balance like? Do you have the same kind of business and decision freedom as on your own or are there different imperatives? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's, it's less pressure in a way because I, you know, when someone like my editorial assistant or the marketing or publicity person, like I'm not paying them, Mm. like they're being paid from the company. Mm. Um, So there's sort of less pressure in thinking about overheads. Um, So what I can really focus on is my books Mm. and I can think about how much I paid, you know, what the and what that um, what the P&L looks like. You know, I can sort of think about how I'm spending on my covers and all the rest of it. And, you know, if I if I have an extra editor or whatever, you know, I can just start thinking, I have to think about those things. And that's actually really, that's really great, not thinking about the building mm. and the physical space in which we work in and, and, and employees. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, it's really funny. I really love having a boss. And I really did not expect. Yeah, no, I know. No one thinks that I would love to have a boss. (laughs) Um, But I I do. And I think it's partly because it's partly because my boss, Charlie King, you know, he he totally got it from the very first moment that we discussed the imprint. And he's just been hugely not just like supportive but Mm -hmm. he gives me like a huge amount of freedom and space to be who I am and to and and is in so encouraging and you know has given me the space to do to do the work in the way that I feel comfortable and he's like that with everybody and so but for me I just feel as though he has this intrinsic trust with me and where that's really important is that you know I'd never been an editor before I've never worked in a publishing house I've never worked in-house I've never worked in that kind of environment I've never worked for a corporate company there's lots of things I hadn't done and he and David Shelley the CEO of Hachette were like literally you need a desk and a chair and a computer and a phone and you'll just get on with it and we just know you'll get on with it and I was like yeah and I'm like really can it be (laughs) like really and actually that's kind of what happened and within that they're just like yep like you're you know you're doing it and so having that support and encouragement um you know is is formidable yeah um I want to ask you just a kind of a few more general questions um which you can answer them kind of based on any point in your career um but I want to know what's the most challenging aspect of what you do actually the most challenging aspect of what you do now the most challenging aspect of what I do now is that I don't just get to do my job as a publisher. I have to do my job very consciously as a black woman and that I have to talk about race, culture, gender, equality, inclusivity, sort of most minutes of the day. 
But I want to challenge you on that, not because, I mean, I totally understand and get where you're coming from that, but you as someone that I know has always been very happy to talk about those sorts of issues. So is that something that that's changed or you don't like your work necessarily always being seen through that specific lens? Well, I just think... It's like, why do you have to be it's a just, black woman publisher? Why can't you just be a publisher? Yeah, you know, that's... To be really honest, you know, it. I I found it really difficult in the first few months because I've, I am such a proud black woman. And, but... I when I lived in Germany, I it was like I am Charmaine Lovegrove, like, and I just do my job, and I love books, and my love of books and my passion for storytelling is what always came first, mm. and it was like and 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 all of these layers that make you you were why I did what I did, um, but it was I didn't have to s- sit on panels talking about why I why people of color why why we need to be in the room and mm. why our voices are important in 2017 in 2018 that conversation is like a continuum and i'm just like yo it's 2018 like seriously are we having to explain whether or not people of color people from um lgbtqi plus backgrounds people from working class backgrounds are able to create something that is as good as somebody who is white and middle class i mean you know it just when you break that down into what what we're really saying is that you know it said i'm three i'm the third generation so my parents my grandparents were born in jamaica my parents were born here and the idea that it's a question whether or not someone from a similar background to me is capable because that's really what we're talking about and like our capabilities as people of color i cannot even begin to tell you how painful that is The thing that's really hard for me is that as a businesswoman, I know that the reason that the publishing industry has to change and diversify is because reader numbers are dwindling. Um, Retailers, we don't have as many retailers as we used to. And, you know, we thought that it was the end of the book with ebooks for some reason. But actually, actually, where it's what's really changing is that our audiences, our readers, um, we're not we're not reaching the people that we want to reach. And so when you start looking at the numbers and you start looking at the audiences, it's really, you know, it's it's absolutely fascinating. If you don't change the if you don't change the characters and the writers, you're not going to attract the millions of people who are not from one specific and a homogenized background. But you need to recognize within all of these creative industries, you need us actually more than we need you. And until we really understand that balance, but at the moment, because the narrative is coming from the homogenized group, then they think that they need to reach out to us because wouldn't it be nice for us to work in publishing? This industry will not survive if you're for you to be to have nepotism in the future because Mm. there won't be a big publishing industry Mm. and that that's a business model what part of running a business do you think most people or people would find the most surprising i think the thing that i'm always 
struck by with people um when i when they're sort of talking about like business is that you can always tell when someone has an underlying passion or expertise in what they're doing versus a kind of just a good idea and i think it takes up so much of your life that that commitment and idea and foundation is like the most important thing to mm. me and that it, for me it's never been about sort of running a business like i said i couldn't just do i couldn't I couldn't just do anything. Mm. I have to work with books and storytelling. Um, and so in simplifying that, then the world has been my oyster. And I've been very um, fortunate to have that sort of single mindedness. And so I think it's not just that you have an idea. It's that you have to really understand like who it's for and you ha and that commitment to your kind of whatever your client or customer base has to be has to be almost your sort of biggest Concern. driver yeah that you know? makes sense and when you're when you're driven by the money then everything i just when i talk to lots of people about that how they run their businesses and i'm just like you know sometimes i'm sort of amazed by the lack of research that they do to even find like competitors or you know to work out because they don't really know that area that well mm. and i think you need to you need to know whatever area you're going into and not call yourself like the first or the best or this or that for me it's kind of different because my i'm not the person that creates the work i facilitate and so if i think also knowing your position you know, like, are you a facilitator? Are you the creator? Are you know, knowing? Are you the marketeer? Are you, are you know, are you the strategist? So, That's understand really great advice. Like, I think a lot of people, I guess, sometimes, yeah, ego can get in the way, or they can get confused about what their remit is, and then they end up trying to do everything and do everything badly, as opposed to committing to what they're like, what they're most needed for in that cycle. Yeah, like I. I don't I don't make the books like I sell them. Do you know, like, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? And now I, I help like I give a guidance in terms of editorial notes and working really closely with the authors and you know and briefing the covers and but ultimately, you know, as I said my job is to be a project manager, um stroke you know, owning and the business with you know of an imprint mm. and that's actually my job is to to be a facilitator. Mm. And I cannot confuse that with being the actual writer and so um and actually first and foremost my job is to be the reader like that's really my job is to be the reader and then to work out what other people who are also readers can do with it and I th yeah so I think that those those two things like know understand fully what your your business actually is and the foundations of you know what nobody is starting anything from scratch um, I just want to finish up with a very quick rapid fire round. Um, I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions. Just say the first thing that comes into your head. Don't think about it too much. Um, but if you weren't doing, and I actually, I'm very interested in your answer to this one. If you weren't doing what you do now, what would have been your plan B? Um, so I'd either be a strategist at somewhere like this Future Lab or I would be a town planner. 
A town planner? Yeah. What, why that? Oh my God, I just, because I love cities, I love you towns, do. I love like how we live, I love sociology, I love like, you know, yeah, just streets and buildings. I definitely wanted to go to like the um, Bartlett School of Architecture at UCL and like work in, work in like town planning. how people live. No, yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. That makes sense. I can see you doing that. Um, are you an early bird or a night owl? Oh my God, I'm such an, you should know that I'm such a night owl. Really? I am such a I feel a like you're owl. an early bird and a night owl. Like no, you have, like, I... ridiculous amounts of energy. You know, I'm, I... Uh, yeah, no. Like, if I could wake up at 10 every day and stay up till four or five you know yeah yeah I'm like you know at one o'clock in the morning like when I'm out I'm just like I'm alive <laughs> alive, alive. I'm just awake and alive and, the opposite oh my of me. god I love the nighttime listen I love being on road out at night <laughs> um what is and actually you have to answer this without saying one of the manuscripts that you've obviously been sent um but what's the last book that you read and loved Last book I read and love, which wasn't my own, was probably The Mothers by Britt Bennett. Oh, that's been on my list for weeks now. Okay, so I'm going to get that. Yeah, yeah. I'm you gonna buy absolutely that today. need to read this book. It's a really important book. Um, what is your worst working habit? I think that I'm quite restless at my desk. Oh, really? Yeah. I can imagine that. You have like a... You're, I think you're high frequency energy. Yeah, yeah. And so I um, I tend to, because I'm a night owl, then during the day, it's kind of good that I have lots of meetings during the day because then I can kind of bounce around. Mm. And then when it gets to kind of four o'clock, I'm like, right, I'll, I'll sit at my desk and I will just get through all of those emails. Mm. And I'll often stay till kind of eight-ish because that quiet... I find really, really. I find surreal. it quite hard to work when the emails are coming in. Like I find that often for me, like around five or six, when people have stopped emailing me, I'm like, ah, now I'm hitting my stride, which is kind of what you've said. Yeah, and I find it really odd. I mean, maybe because uh, I'm not a millennial, but I'm just like, my job has existed for a really long time, mm. like over a hundred years as a publisher, and they didn't have emails. So, you know, the all the <sighs> other stuff that you need to do, like write copy edit yeah read you know all of those other things like to me that's my thinking about the cover thinking about publicity all of that stuff marketing that's that is my job and the emails i just find like absolutely relentless and the idea that you're supposed to just sit at your desk and emails <laughs> come in. and so i have a real email phobia because i, I just, hate my emails at the moment i just people send too many emails well also people i just send like, emails that don't need to be sent I i'm just, on a real tan thing about emails at the moment could you describe yourself in three words um i think that i am bold and passionate and conscientious yes i totally agree with all those things that's brilliant um how do you think the people you work with would describe you in three words bold and passionate and if you say conscientious <laughs> no not conscientious i don't i don't think we've, we've got there yet but i think uh, yeah i i think they'd say that i, I think i can only stick to those two mm. you know I think it's it's quite hard going into a big 
office of 150 people mm. um, in a building of a thousand people and and being bold and passionate in the way that I am and having like such a presence. But I think the thing that they've learned in six months is that although I um, am very present, like on social media and like, you know, I do appearances like this and all the rest of it. I think that they've, they've definitely understood that it's because I genuinely, like I genuinely mean it. I hope they understand, like I mean it and that yeah. how important it is to me and that I'm not trying to be heard for the sake of being heard. It's that no, I genuinely want to make it. comes from a point of you, but I think it's important for you to be a figurehead and to be vocal and to kind of build a platform for yourself slash dialogue because it, it you know, it, like it needs, you know, to have that kind of profile so that you get, you know, I'm sure you're inundated with manuscripts as it is, but you want more. Like you want more people to be like, ah, oh, like dialogue is my first choice to absolutely. publish this. Absolutely. Like that is the thing is that the books and the publishing is like absolutely at the centre. And also, you know, like on the bus on the way here, there were these three little girls and I was on the phone to someone, they sort of turned around and looked at me and then they all smiled sort of separately. And I was just like, <laughs> you know yeah you could be having this conversation about this in the future and so maybe you overheard that and that's totally fine yeah and I just you know I just look at my son and my nieces and nephews and I just think yeah like the future the future is bright and if that's has to be a bit more painful for me for a bit longer then that's fine I think that is a lovely note to end on. Thank you so much for joining me today, Charmaine. It's been a pleasure as always. Um, And yeah, see you soon. On today's episode of Ask a Tega, I'm dealing with a letter from someone whose bosses promised her a pay rise, but didn't actually follow through. And now she's wondering whether this is even the right job for her in the first place. Dear Ortega, I work in marketing at a media agency and last year after the director on my account left, my bosses decided to leave the role open, saying that would provide me with space to grow into. I was assured that my pay would rise to compensate for the extra responsibility, but as expected, the promised pay rise kept being delayed and when I finally received the pay rise in November of last year, eight months after it had initially been promised, of course I was given a fraction of what had initially been promised. I expressed my dismay and my bosses assured me that come bonus time, which is May of this year, I'll be compensated properly. But over the last few months, I've become disillusioned, not only with the promises being made, but also the work I'm doing. I have wonderful volunteer work that I do in my spare time that really nurtures me and aligns with my passions. And I'm now considering if I should just quit my current role, regardless of the promises, and try to pursue things in a less profitable but more interesting field. The one thing that keeps me where I am is my poor financial decisions earlier in my life. I have a lot of outstanding debt and the idea of taking a salary drop is really terrifying. I'd appreciate some advice on how best to structure my thoughts this coming year. Am I right to prioritise money over passions, given that I have debts and loans to pay back? Or should I be focusing on my own wellness and finding a career that nurtures me properly? It all seems like a mess. Help. Yours sincerely, should I stay or should I go? Okay, I'm going to start with a very general bit of advice for anyone listening, and also obviously for this letter writer, which is that when it comes to getting a salary sort of pay rise or agreeing a promotion or anything like that, you should always try and get those sorts of promises 
in writing so that you have something concrete to refer back to. So when you have these kinds of conversations with your bosses, always follow up conversations with an email summarising what was discussed. Um, and also try and get quite concrete, clear sort of promises out of people. So if they've promised you a pay rise or a title change or promotion, you know, ask when they're going to do this by, ask how much it's going to be and write that up in an email and send it to them afterwards. Just being like, hey, as discussed in our you know, chat yesterday, just, you know, confirming that this is what's been promised or just making sure I'm clear on what's been promised, that I'm going to get X promise by why date um I always say she who writes the minutes controls the conversation but I do think it's really important to you know just have a paper trail when it comes to things like this if only for your kind of sanity as well so you don't start doubting that things were actually promised um the same applies to be honest if you ask for a pay rise or promotion and you don't get it you know, you should always ask, for, try and find out what you need to do so that you get that pay rise or promotion the next time you ask. Um, I think the terminology used is SMART. So you should set SMART goals, which is an acronym that stands for, I think, specific, measurable, actionable, reasonable and time bound, um, which is exactly what it sounds like. Set really specific goals, things that are actually tangible and measurable that you can actually say, yes, I've, you know, build an extra, you know, £10,000 this year therefore I expect a pay rise actionable things you can actually do reasonable not completely you know crazy like oh if you build a rocket that'll take us to the moon then you get a pay rise um, and time bound have a deadline that you've agreed with your employer so that you can revisit the issue with them six months or three months down the line I'm not sure if that if you did that in that case in this case and you know that obviously doesn't excuse your bosses going back on their word and delaying your pay rise. But it is just something that I would bear in mind for future reference. And to anyone listening more generally, always try to do that when you're getting these sorts of promises out of employers. Um, but what do you do when you get a pay rise, but it's not what you expected or what you hoped for? Um, I think it's really easy for people to feel kind of awkward or maybe even a little bit guilty about asking for more because technically you did get a pay rise and I do think sometimes employers can get out of giving the full amount that employees deserve by making more token gestures instead so if you've asked for a pay rise of 10 grand and they've given you two grand and it's a bit like "Mm, it's not quite the same thing um so I am glad that you as you said you kind of expressed dismay over that I think in your case and for anyone listening again it is totally valid to go back to your boss and say that actually that pay rise wasn't in line with your expectations, um, obviously depending on the circumstances. And you can literally phrase it by saying something like, I appreciate you know, the pay rise. And I think that whilst that's a good start, it's not quite in line with my expectations or what I feel I deserve because of X, Y, Z. And then go on to reiterate your case for more money. Um, I would say that you should try and do that as soon as possible after you find out about a pay rise that isn't what you expected, you know, within a few days at max, so that you can say, oh, actually, I've been mulling it. And so it's still clearly part of the same ongoing discussion I think it's harder to come back a few months later and say oh actually I don't think that pay rise you gave me five months ago was really fair if you didn't say anything at the time um and thankfully in this case the letter writer you did express that um because we don't know what's going to happen in May yet I'm going to put that issue to the side for now um all I've said all of what I've just said will definitely be relevant if they don't give you the compensation you want or feel you deserve 
Um, I do feel like also I should point out because you mentioned that this what's going to happen in May is a bonus. I should point out that getting a one off bonus, even if that feels great and is a substantial amount, that's not the same thing as having an overall higher baseline salary, which is something that's going to affect your future salaries, both at that company and in the future. So where possible, I would really be pushing for an overall pay rise as opposed to one off bonus that may or not be you know, may or may not be repeated and might feel good at the time, might, you know, maybe help you get out of a particular financial constraint if you're having, you know, trouble paying your rent that month. Um, but that isn't a permanent solution unless it's huge and they give you like your entire salary in a bonus, but that very rarely happens. Um, but that is, you know, all stuff that you'll consider if you stay at this company, which you're not sure that you want to do. And this is kind of the other bit of the conundrum in this letter, sort of two things here. And there's a lot of different considerations here. So I'm going to say, first of all, you should really absolutely separate your, your concerns about whether or not you like the work you do and the industry you're working in from whether or not you get this pay rise. Because if you actually are happy with the work, but you feel disillusioned because of the whole pay situation, because of your specific employer, because of your specific boss, that's something that could hypothetically be fixed by either getting a pay rise from them moving somewhere else and you know hopefully getting a pay rise that way um you don't have to leave the industry unless you know low pay happens to be endemic throughout and there's no sort of light at the end of the tunnel but that isn't the case when it comes to marketing and media agencies i know that for a fact um so try to separate out whether you like the work or the industry from whether your current boss or employers aren't compensating you fairly because there are ways around the latter so don't let that be the reason you leave if you do feel like, and it sounds this way from your letter, like long term, you don't think you'll be happy in this industry doing this, then yes, obviously, it's absolutely worth considering trying to make a career doing more of what you're passionate about and what you find fulfilling and what makes you want to get up in the morning. Um, my advice to you, you know, you were asking about how to structure your thoughts, make a game plan. You know, is this a question of can you start saving now or more aggressively pay off the debt? And loans you have so that you know that in six or 12 months or 18 months you can take a lower paid job and kind of have that as your goal and like your light of the end at the end of the tunnel um and also that'll you know hopefully give you time to start getting your cv in order and start sending out job applications because the job search process can take a little while so maybe if you kind of set yourself a goal of a specific period of time that you're going to kind of be working this job up until um, that kind of might make it a little bit easier to bear if you're not really loving the day-to-day. -day. Obviously, money is a concern for you as it is for most people. Um, so I, I definitely wouldn't just quit without a new stable source of income lined up as it's quite possible that you could, you know, you might have to rely on credit cards or get into more debt and exacerbate what is, you know, obviously a really stressful situation for you around money as it is for lots of people. Um, I do obviously think that your focus generally should be on ultimately finding a career that you feel happy about and that you really enjoy. Um, but also I would say don't feel pressure to have that all sorted out tomorrow or next week you know these are things that could be more of a mid-term goal and maybe your short-term priority is paying back your debt or making more inroads on savings um you didn't say whether the volunteer work you're doing is in the sector you'd potentially be interested in although i'm kind of assuming it is um if so a bit of advice i'd give you on that is to make sure the work you're doing is actually going to make you more employable if you want to transition 
into that field in the sort of midterm. So make sure you're getting the right sorts of responsibilities and skills and experience and doing the right sorts of tasks as opposed to kind of more generally floating around. So start evaluating that volunteer work in the way you would evaluate kind of anything else on your CV um, and make sure that volunteer work actually counts for something so that it could be considered valid experience that an employer in that field would actually value. So maybe your action plan for the next six months is, you know, being a little bit more focused or target targeted around that volunteer work, uh, whilst at the same time being a little bit more aggressive about your saving plans if you can do that. So that if you do leave your job down the line, you're actually really making these months count on every front, both in terms of the financials and in terms of your career experience. And then in six months time, you can kind of reevaluate where you are. Have you gotten that raise? Has it made you feel any better about doing your current job? Or do you still definitely want to leave? And then maybe that's when you start applying for new jobs. Not to say that you can't do that in the interim, but, you know, try and kind of stagger things and don't try and overwhelm yourself all at once. Um, and, you know, that is also a point. Do you kind of make sure that at the same time as you're trying to make these you know, pretty major decisions. You're also remembering to cut yourself some slack. Um, don't put yourself, don't put pressure on yourself to have it all figured out by this time next month. I think there is so much pressure on people when they're kind of, you know, starting out their careers or kind of mid-level, which sounds like you are, um, to have everything sorted out because it looks like on social media, like everyone else loves their job and is doing amazingly at it. That's not the case. Um, make sure you're still making time for the things that you enjoy that aren't at all work related, seeing your friends um, and things that you have fun doing. And I also think it's really important because maintaining a sense of perspective and talking to other people and seeing other people can really do wonders for your sense of clarity. So yeah, I hope that helps. Um, and if anyone else, if you've got a career question that you'd like my advice on during next month's show, just email podcast at womenwho.co and let me know what's on your mind. That's all we've got time for this month. Thank you for tuning in. For more career inspiration and information, follow Women Who at Women Who on Instagram and Twitter or head to our website www.womenwho.co to sign up for our weekly newsletter, The Roundup. You can find me tweeting and Instagramming at Otega Uagba. And if you're listening on iTunes, don't forget to subscribe. And as always, please, please, please leave us a lovely five-star review whilst you're there. See you next time. Yeah, yeah. MTS Radio.